I uh, already did the art for this week because I guess I was start. I sat down on my computer at two o'clock and I'm like, uh, I'm probably not gonna go sit in the beep peep <laughs> chat. I bet I could just spend ten minutes and get this art done, especially since I'm probably gonna edit it anyway. I had a pretty yeah. good inclination that that your week has been full, so. Yeah, this week has been a nightmare for me. I've been uh, I've been out among the the masses, pressure washing garbage trucks in an attempt to uh, proletarianize myself. <laughs> Aesthetically, I'm learning what it's like to walk around completely fucking soaked and dirty, wearing a, a company hoodie and some jeans I got at Goodwill for the express purpose of ruining. <laughs> <laughs> out nice. there, out there with the with the real workers, not like those. Petit bourgeois teachers lavender and farmers and nurses <laughs> yeah. and lavender farmers and I mean, everybody. Oh wait, I saw that the, yeah, the fucking that? tweet that that's like it's like teachers are petit bourgeois or whatever it is. Like, yeah, <laughs> stupid, terrible take. Not even a conversation uh, worth having. But no. speaking of conversations worth having, I have actually had a few really good conversations with the like rando West Michigan guys on the power washing cruise, nice. and they have like a pretty crazy range of political opinions as you I'm might sure. expect you've yeah. got your msnbc libs you've got your glenn beck republicans you've got your trump anti-covid anti-maskers i'm furiously raising and lowering my eyebrows <laughs> right now and uh <laughs> the funny thing is i like i've been super selective about what political issues to talk about so i talk about things sure. going on in other countries a lot like internal political development abroad but then i always kind of like bust in the union talk real quick and i'm like well you know all those john deere workers are on strike or you know that thing going on at kellogg and like regardless of their background these dudes have all been like yeah they should get what they fucking deserve that's <laughs> Those right companies should like <laughs> treat them the way that they you know they're asking to be treated uh they said it a little more vulgarly than that but <laughs> john, I, I was are you suggesting <laughs> that class might be a somewhat universal issue around which people might be able to find uh, some some shared uh, views and interests? Yeah, I mean, literally, the guy who uh, who was screaming at talk radio in the truck on the way to a job site that he will never get a vaccine, and if Joe Biden mandates companies under a hundred test their employees or make them get vaccinated, he'll quit. And then uh, I brought up the fucking. John Deere um, and Kellogg's thing, and he was like, they're in breach of fucking contract! <laughs> and I'm like, that's not exactly right, but I really like your energy on this. Yeah. <laughs> that's the but thing. It's like, people get this idea, I think, sometimes, that like, pe well, I think it just goes back to so much idealism that people have where, and, and you were kind of getting at this, we were talking about like the way people will I, like overused taxonomy mm -hmm. and like to, to really essentialize people just by being like, if you've moved into this box on this issue, well, that clearly defines you forever. And it's like, yeah, okay. In the, in the, in the case of like certain extremes, like if you find somebody who's a really strong, like Kyle Rittenhouse supporter. Yeah. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's an indication of, you know, you probably don't need to bother talking to that person. Well, it's like there, there are some political, uh, attributes or like opinions people have that say a lot 
when they right. say a little like supporting Kyle Rittenhouse is a great example of something that like gives away your whole game pretty much right. in one move. But um, like a lot of other opinions, like some garden variety liberal is like, I like low taxes or like, I like high taxes. It's right. like, it's not even worth it to like get into the weeds yeah. with that about them because it's like, if you're a leftist or if you're anything, like if you're a weird libertarian or something and you want to evangelize to these people, you have bigger bones. Maybe not if you're a libertarian, you have bigger bones to pick <laughs> the taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's the thing. It's like, cause there's so many things that I think people have, like reactionary takes that people have just lumped into the, this means somebody is a Republican and that means that they are permanently and forever and will always be right wing instead of it's like, well, who owns all the fucking media and what are most people exposed to 24 seven and therefore likely to, you know, regurgitate talking points from. And if you provide them with an alternative that perhaps speaks to their conditions, maybe a bit better than those like esoteric corporate crafted, you know, reactionary talking points. Right. Maybe they might see something valuable in that and change their position. (laughs) Well, and my favorite example of like how deeply ingrained this uh, taxonomical kind of like pigeonholing is in American politics is when there was a a period last year, the year before where there was a, a, like a, a rut of news coming out of Ireland uh, talking about the Republicans versus the unionists. And uh, that's the, the vocabulary there is like 180 degrees out of phase with right. the United States. And to see us commenters try to jump on and be like, yeah, fuck the unionists. They don't need higher wages. It's like, that's not what any of this is about <laughs> at all. But you're, you're like so married to this vocabulary yeah. that you immediately have like this instinct to jump on it when you don't know what you're fucking talking about. not knowing what you're fucking talking about just kidding it's work stoppage everybody the most knowledgeable labor show on the internet uh we're all here i've had a rough week of work let's get into it um let me get the notes back up here uh oh yeah we are entirely listener supported so thank you so much if you've thrown us any money on patreon if you haven't that's okay uh if you're not in the discord though that's unforgivable get in there and check out the (laughs) memes from the meme review uh it's free so you don't have any excuse not to and please go ahead and leave us a five-star review anywhere you think would be appropriate you can graffiti it on a subway station we don't care um we're gonna start with talking about Starbucks. This is one of the bigger issues that's been getting a lot of coverage because there's been this unionization effort uh, in Buffalo that we have previously talked about. And also because this brings the union uh, effort in the United States really close to home. You know, you got to hit them in their third place, their their (laughs) green coffee chain. (laughs) That's a, for people who don't know, that's a Starbucksism where they, they believe in like, there are two places that people normally go, work, and home, and right. we are trying to be the third place they that's go. Right. It's stupid. Yeah, that's fucking dumb. Um, but yeah, but I guess actually we don't need to worry about this so much because apparently, uh, uh, what is what's his name? Uh, 
Howard Schultz. Yeah, because uh, uh, Howard Schultz has apparently solved capitalism's problems, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, that was, that's what he said at the big uh, at the big into union expo. I guess, and yeah, that <laughs> that's like what we really want to talk about with this today. Because I mean, folks, I'm like we've talked about Starbucks Workers United a couple times, but this week has been you know the day because just uh, on Wednesday we finally got to the point where ballots were actually officially sent out to workers and so the the election has begun despite a last minute push by starbucks to try and prevent the the ballots from being sent out basically arguing like well we think you should reconsider our arguments on on why you should have to unionize every store in the city at once instead of doing store by store votes but the nlrb was like we already ruled on that and so just turned it down and, and sent out the <laughs> the ballots but starbucks has been going absolute full court press on this like to the point where it's like i'm almost wondering if how ridiculous they've been about this is perhaps i mean we'll see with the results but perhaps a bit counterproductive because there's no way that you could present to anyone with a straight face that all the shit that they've been doing has been like just because they care about wanting to make sure that they keep the same good relationship they have with the partners, their yeah. employees. Well, <laughs> and and we saw with uh, some of the more vocal union organizers in the in the Starbucks union that they were like trying to demand a you know a no interference con- uh, like thing, uh, which obviously they refused to sign, and also just. Oh right, right. Uh, well, and and one of the things that they're do that they were talking about is how Starbucks actually increased the the minimum wage of their workers to fifteen dollars an hour, and and it's like, oh, it's really kind of a coincidence that it's <laughs> yeah. coinciding with one of the strongest union pushes. It's almost like the union itself got that win. Yeah, I've uh, asked this before, but why are all these Scandinavian countries suddenly providing benefits during the rise of the USSR as a superpower? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, basically, what uh, they they went around and they said they went around and they raised wages for every store so that it wouldn't be against status quo. Because, I mean, obviously, that's the kind of thing you take, even if you're in status quo, and they say, oh, we want to raise everyone's wages to $15, that just gives you more power. You can just say, that's not Starbucks that did that. That's us. We're That's mm-hmm, also right. the working union people that, that did that. So uh, they're, really, they're really just putting their foot in their mouth constantly, and I, it just... What was it the um I want to take a little credit for predicting the future on that that like they're like oh there's going to be a special guest we don't know who it's going to be at this at this you know anti-union you know rally or whatever they put on and I was like yeah it's probably Howard Schultz and then 2 days later <laughs> fucking Boom. Howard Schultz I you know I bet it's, it's because it's it's really because the methods are so predictable that what they do is they bring in a higher up they're like oh now the boss is going to come and talk with you which they don't talk with the workers they talk to the workers right um but but they they try to create this guise that oh now we're listening so you don't need a union but that logic still doesn't hold because they didn't they didn't even quote-unquote listen until there was the union right so the union created the conditions for those talks and if you want them to continue what is it that you need to, rem- to to keep the union and to to keep fighting and to actually get more people on board obviously well, and that, it's that, just 
It's so simple. That recognition and that like claiming of credit for these things is really important. Not just you predicting that it would be Howard Schultz, but the employees taking credit for the increase in wages and the employees continuing to take credit for... Honestly, they should be taking credit for everything that happens in a Starbucks because they do all the production and all of the work. Um, but I also think... Uh, Dan, you were making a really cogent point about this kind of overexposure of anti-union materials. Uh, I think Starbucks is a little bit tone deaf to the way that their employees respond to like official statements from the company. Uh, having worked for Starbucks, I know that the vast majority of employees shake their head in disgust and say this bullshit again when they even receive a cursory memo from management. <laughs> so when they received this extraordinarily uh, just condescending and insulting email, uh, from corporate, I can't imagine how the people who, not just organizing for Starbucks, but who might have been on the fence about the union drive uh, must have felt in response to that. Because it's it's one of the most demeaning uh, and and truly despicable emails I've seen. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's, it's your class, like, this is one of those things that in a few sentences, like, hits so many of those, like, anti-union bingo mm -hmm. card points where they've got in here and because this was an email they sent to all the employees last week where they said we want you to vote no unless you are positive you want to pay a union to represent you to us you must <laughs> vote no there is no opt-out if the majority of voters vote yes regardless of how you voted it's like yeah Good. that's that, that's how a democratic election works, correct? I love I love opting out of my worker protections. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I the wish whole, they could. Do you want to pay a union to represent you to us thing? It's like, man, how dumb do you think people are? <laughs> yeah, well, and then what? I guess I, I don't know how far we want to go into Howard Schultz calling unionization oh, akin to uh, akin to anti-Semitism and, 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 and genocide. That <laughs> thing was so weird. I was thinking about reading the whole thing, but it's way too long and it doesn't make any sense. But basically at the event that, that Lena was talking about where Howard Schultz came and they paid all of the workers who were at all these unionizing shops – they shut down the, the stores for a couple of hours and, and had everybody come to this Hyatt and this conference room to listen to Howard Schultz tell them stories about how Starbucks is, in his view, trying to be like sharing blankets at Auschwitz during the Holocaust, which I tr I've read his weird like anecdote a, a few times and it hasn't made sense to me <laughs> once yet. It is an extremely tone deaf and bizarre comparison. Uh, well, and it's, like, it's, it's like disrespectful to people who actually appreciate the severity and the seriousness and the tragedy of the Holocaust, because like he's just kind of loosely attaching something that he knows is controversial to the point he's trying to make in an attempt to like, kind of like cow people who aren't sure what to think once something like the Holocaust has been brought up into agreeing with him because he must be the one making the cogent point, right? He brought up the Holocaust, but he's not. He's being like wildly disrespectful, not just to history, but to every other person in the room listening to him speak. Yeah. And, and as you were saying, like right after he um, gave this, this talk to, to uh, the workers there, one of the lead organizers from uh, Starbucks United 
tried to get him to agree to these fair election principles. And he was, of course, you know, quickly whisked away by <laughs> by staffers so that he, oh, he sorry, wouldn't be able to be quoted. I have a meeting with not the union. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, Howard Schultz was under sniper fire in Libya. That's a little <laughs> yes. Hillary Clinton reference for the listener. <laughs> yeah, well, and the thing is, it certainly doesn't seem as if these anti-union measures, which then included... One final one of using uh, you maybe maybe either of you uh, be more familiar specifically with Starbucks can explain to me. I guess they have like an emergency text channel for their employees like from the company. I guess if there's like a I assume for like scheduling things where somebody gets sick or something or or like. No, definitely. If they they would not use it for that, they would rather discipline someone. No, I actually I never saw it used, although I mean. I'm sure they have it. They have everyone's numbers on file and they share them. And they also use that to, uh, to not check their records and den name trans people. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, I worked for Starbucks for six years. I never in my life received an emergency text from them. (laughs) And I worked in a Starbucks in the waterfront, uh, on a day where there was a, where there was gun violence on the other end of the waterfront and we closed for like two hours and hunkered down in the store. I never saw a fucking emergency text. (laughs) Well, so I guess that tells us how big of an emergency (laughs) this union election is because they use this, I guess, emergency channel that they have at the company with everybody's phone number in it to send every employee a three and a half minute long anti-union video the day all of the election ballots went out on Wednesday. Oh, my God. Again, just (laughs) disrespectful. Like, Starbucks is one of those companies that is, like, all about only doing things the prescribed way and having a a set standard for the way everything is done. But as soon as they're, like, threatened by a little bit of organized labor, they're like, I guess the emergency text channel is for uh, (laughs) anti-union updates now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, great work, guys. They've thrown all of this stuff at the workers, and yet earlier this week, Three more stores in the Buffalo area all Mm -hmm. filed for union elections. So uh, I think that's probably an indication that this campaign has at best not worked as well as they'd hoped. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. honestly, it's very I'm I'm actually very hopeful because like even if they don't all win their elections, like there's probably going to be at least one store that that wins. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I worry about with that. Is I'm hoping that there's at least two because I'm really yeah, worried that if there's one, yeah, they'll just close it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But but who knows? I mean, uh, maybe the first one will go and it will uh, it will incite some of the others. I, I hope that yeah. the early yeah. unionization effort shows some success because I think that that will empower other workers to to you know vote yes. Well, and yeah. uh, there, there's a strength in the fact that like these union elections are not all happening concurrently, right? Right. Because as they continue to file, there's like a rolling schedule depending on uh, circumstances for when the union actually gets uh, eventually recognized, and so that's I think that's kind of a strength for the workers because Starbucks has to continue running around putting out fires and is going to have trouble uh, reacting to this at the macro scale, I think, while they're being kept so, so busy on the, uh, like, interpersonal uh, one-to-one scale. Yeah. So the elections, uh, the first round of elections finished up on December 8th, so we'll be, you know, just in a few weeks, we'll be very eager to see how that goes. Yep. 
unfortunately, something that doesn't have a a definite end date and and maybe stretching on for a while now mm-hmm. is the Kellogg strike, which has has now entered its second month. And yeah. unfortunately, uh, the there's really seems to the kind of the negotiations seem to have largely hit a wall uh, because we talked about this strike like you know when it first started. There was a, a lot of good momentum around it. Uh, obviously, there was a, at least some disruption to Kellogg's supply chains, but they've they've basically been stonewalling the BCTGM for for weeks now, where they they sent out their you know their last best and final offer. Where unlike John Deere, they actually said that at the time they were bargaining and didn't right. declare it afterwards. Um, but it was to the point where even like it we wasn't their offer was not even considered good enough by the union bargaining committee to even bother bringing it to the rest of the membership like the because the membership has made it clear that they want nothing to do with the current two-tiered employment system which is great i've been like as as frustrating as the company's intransigence has been it's been equally as, as inspiring to see the workers stand firm on that point but to, to see that Kellogg's has been just completely adamant about not changing that because they find that division so useful. There was a, so the bargaining committee put out a statement on the last, that when they got the last best and final offer from the company that said, quote, that offer does not achieve what we were asking, a pathway to fully vetted workers without takeaways. The company said they would get off their two tier and get us to a pathway, but they could not find a fully benefited way to achieve this. With this issue, we were unable to address the other items that are still on the table. We cannot recommend this offer and will not bring it back to the membership to vote on. We agreed that we will not have concessions, and that is all their last offer was. We'll be home tomorrow. We'll continue this fight for as long as it takes. Continue to hold the line and stand strong. Damn. They got a good bargaining committee, uh, or it was a particularly shitty offer either way. Uh, but it is kind of impressive because t- to see that they didn't even bring it forward to the workers because yeah. uh, I think the companies will a lot of the time try and like really pressure the bargaining committee into accepting something and taking it to the workers and then letting the like the the tension happen between the committee and the rest of the union instead of between all of the union collectively and the company. Um, yeah, because I mean, we've seen so many cases in the past, especially with some of the larger, more traditionally class collaborationist unions, um, where success of a strike is getting an agreement ratified, not whether the agreement actually hit the goals of what the workers were fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen with some of the recent upsurges in rank and file resistance to the results of that, where obviously, I mean, UAW out at the front of that with multiple strikes this year where thousands of workers rejected multiple um, proposed contracts from bargaining committees to, to stand firm on, on tough points. But then also um, seeing, you know, with the Teamsters, with the, uh, the uh, insurgent movement from, you know, the TDU and, and general reform slate that is pushing for leadership there – I think we are seeing that decades of like basically the response to the neoliberal hollowing out of the union movement Mm -hmm. after, you know, the breaking of the PATCO strike and decades of these contracts with these two tiered or three tiered or, you know, whatever version of these incredibly shitty structures 
workers have seen how those play out and are fucking tired of it. And, and so like, like you were saying, it's, it's good to, to see that because BCTGM is a, it's a big union and to see that their bargaining committee understood that the workers want these two tiers out of this fucking contract. So we can't come back with anything that, that keeps that shit in there. Yeah, well, and it, it reminds me, and we're not going to do a follow-up on the on the deer strikers right now, but they have this line that they have in one of their newest, uh, la- the new- newest Labor Notes articles is, we'll never be in this position again. That's well, right. And, and, and I think that that is, uh, for, it, it has two real points to it. One, that they are going to win this and there will not be two-tiered contracts again, but also the amount of power and leverage that they have right here at this point. You know, after Striketober, after the pandemic, so many people didn't negotiate during the pandemic when they I, they really should have. But they're trying to like get back to it and trying to use that momentum from from the the, the pandemic to build power. And I I think that the Kellogg workers are are doing kind of the same thing. They they realize that there is no time to get rid of the two tier contract except for right now. There is no there is no like capitulating on this on this point. Yeah. And and one thing that I, I think is important to, like, highlight about this moment and, and the energy within these strikes, because I've seen po- folks ob- obviously correctly pointing out that if you want to contextualize it numbers-wise, the, you know, Striketober, as much as, you know, we named an episode that, and, it, and, and there have been a lot of, you know, big energy strikes, the actual sheer number of people on strike is still well below even, you know, the early 80s, late 70s. But when we look at what specifically these workers are fighting for and the, the, the language they're using around it, like specifically when we see folks fighting against these two-tier contracts because it, that is fighting for workers that don't work at the plant yet. That's fighting for future workers and workers at other parts of the industry. So and the reason I bring this up is because I, you know, you'll sometimes see ultra-left arguments – on the the revolutionary left in in the u.s especially online that like all u.s workers are members of the labor aristocracy and the union movement is inherently reactionary and all this all this nonsense where it's like if that was true everywhere would be putting up two-tier three-tier contracts all the time because workers wouldn't be caring about fighting for future workers and folks that don't you know the the future of people who they haven't even met and that's what you know these folks are specifically striking to to get away from and so that to me is such an indication that it's like there is so much potential when you already have folks with a level of consciousness for that in their industry that the jump from that to a broader like class conscious movement is not that, you know, huge and is something that is like very much attainable if we're willing to put the work in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I've just been routinely shocked in my personal life over and over again by how willing people are to come together around class because it's something I think that just like intrinsically affects everybody in the country. Like, right. You know, you, you pretty much know, I guess, unless you're like a homeowner who has a high-paying salaried job where they're still functionally a worker, but they don't, they're not, that person isn't sure where they are in the class system, even though they're still a worker. Um, but most people know. <laughs> yeah. And, mm-hmm. and like, because of how good, like, how cl- conscious these strikes have been and how mm-hmm. broader sighted than just 
we want, you know, an immediate raise and, and, and better benefits, which is, you know, worth fighting for. But the fact that they're looking beyond that is yet another reason why we need to be supporting these workers and specifically with the Kellogg's workers here as this strike stretches on there's going to be more difficulties because specifically Kellogg's cut off their healthcare at the beginning of the strike. And they're planning to just try and wait this out by using scabs to continue to run their operation. So like there was a quote here from Kevin Bradshaw, who's vice president of local 252 G. And he's also a, a case sealer operator at the Memphis plant who was giving an interview to Jacobin and was, and said, quote, most are doing okay, but a few have health conditions that now don't have any medical insurance because the company cut our insurance off. We have people with scheduled surgeries and some who, just as we speak, have been diagnosed with cancer, who have worked more than 20 years, who today can't even get chemo and other treatments they need. Kellogg's is playing really dirty, end quote. Yeah, I mean, like, we're seeing some of the strongest repression of many of the, like, sure, we just talked about the Starbucks workers. A lot of that is still, like, bluster from the company, and, and like, hopefully the workers will overcome it. But this is, like, direct repression from the company, right. including their they filed an injunction against the um, strikers at their Omaha plant for, like, quote-unquote, strike for blocking entrances to its cereal plant and intimidating replacement workers. Like, what's the problem? I don't, I don't see the problem with that. But <laughs> He's like, that's what a strike is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're, they're pulling out all the stops. And, and the idea that they just, like, the, the whole work or die, like, mentality behind this company is just appalling. Like, people, like, they're... They're literally putting people's health at risk. I mean, imagine putting off like an essential surgery, like try being like talking to your doctor and being like, we need to reschedule this like six months down the road. I know I need it now, but we need to reschedule this. Like mm-hmm. what kind of like that's that causes long term health like problems for people like I'm sure a lot of young people know this from not having dental insurance forever. And mm-hmm. when was the last time you went to the dentist? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are plenty of listeners out there who can relate to that one at the very least. Yeah, because they don't want to pay to take care of your luxury bones, your your teeth. Ah, yes. The famous but, luxury bones that I don't really use for anything. <laughs> uh. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I'm going to put the Kellogg Strike Fund um, into the notes again mm-hmm. because, like, these folks are fighting, you know, the same exact horrific conditions that we've talked about with the folks that were on strike at Lay's and then the folks that were on strike at Nabisco. And now being without health care for what could be a, you know, several months long strike while they're getting hit with all these injunctions, like we got to we got to support these folks like any way we can. So um, I'm going to post that up there. And if any listeners can contribute to that, that would be, you know, a material contribution to the class struggle. Yeah, and if anybody's out there anywhere near any any of these plants, go out to the line, ask the workers what they need. Do any like we saw the solidarity with like some of the deer workers that were asking for like diapers and and like uh, dry stock foods and stuff like that. Go out there and ask them if that's the sort of thing they need, and Mm -hmm. see if we can get that sort of thing organized. Because these these workers need like not only their strike fund filled, but their household needs filled. So yeah, that's a yeah. it's a good thing that people could go out there and do. Um, yeah. In our next story, we're actually going to be going back to our bread and butter, a nurses' strike. That's well, right. actually, uh, one of the we we covered so many nurses' strikes throughout like the earlier parts of this this show, and and they're at it again. Uh, uh, 
I guess, well, I, I'm, I should say, uh, they, they, how do I want to phrase that? See, my brain's not working. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're seeing, we saw nurses from Mercy Hospital in, in Buffalo, same place as the area uh, that the Starbucks workers are organizing in, uh, out on strike for uh, five weeks. The 2,000 workers ha- oh, finally ratified their new contract, and uh, it looks like they got pretty much what they wanted for the most part. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this strike in particular, because like as you said, we've covered a ton of nurses strikes. And in addition to that, with some of the other ones that we've just various general strikes that we've like generally strikes that we have covered where we've gone over the ratification process. There really seems to be a big amount of variance, union to union to union, with how directly involved the actual rank and file can be in that ratification process, whether it's, you know, having like direct access to the bargaining committee or just being like they get emailed a bullet-pointed highlight list and are like, hey, this is great, vote for it. Um, Whereas this one... They had ratification settings all weekend where every single member of the union was able to question the whole bargaining committee. They were talking about doing basically like 12 hours of meetings to cycle in all the, the of the 2000 people who, you know, had been on strike, who, who wanted to ask any questions so that every, you know, every worker's question could be answered by somebody representing the group that had put together this tentative agreement and by all accounts, it sounds like they managed to get just about everything they were demanding I love from that. Catholic Health. That's so fucking cool, and it just is. It strikes a stake in the heart of the argument. People often offer up, whether they're anti-union, uh, anti-socialist, whatever, they're like, people don't want to go to meetings. <laughs> people don't want to express themselves and be heard and then have policy enacted on their behalf. People don't want that. <laughs> that takes time. <laughs> and like I just I th- that's the dumbest fucking argument I've ever heard in my life and I think this uh this contract uh drive whatever you call it this attempt um to ratify a contract by passing it through the hands of all the individual members and asking them what they think uh the how well this worked I think should be enough ammo in your chamber to tell anyone who says that kind of shit to just shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> and and management sees this. They see all of the workers mm-hmm. being individually engaged. Like this is a very clear like threat to their anti-union efforts because they see that all of the union members are being engaged with. Mm-hmm. Like that that is actually showing more power and it's another one of the reasons why they get more of what they're asking for because they know that like the workers are going to scrutinize it they're going to go in there and be like no i'm sorry this isn't right do it again or you know what this is what we asked for those are like the two options yeah so some of the stuff that they actually got in this uh, contract includes a base pay rate of $15 an hour, safe staffing ratios of one nurse to four patients, and intact retirement and health benefits. Uh, before the strike, over 15% of the workers at Mercy made less than $15 an hour, and over the weekend, 94% of the workers, members of CWA Local 1133, voted to accept the new contract. So it also, like, it got voted yes with flying fucking colors, which is no surprise when you've let all the people who are going to vote on it see it. <laughs> yeah, and 
and when we initially covered this the strike when it started there were I remember there were two specific things that folks were emphasizing over and over again that were mm-hmm. the primary reasons they were striking one was that there was a basically a permanent level of understaffing that was only made worse by the pandemic and that was making care basically insufficient and ultimately unsafe for the patients there because Mercy Hospital like basically every privately run hospital in the country has been trying to, you know, squeeze as much profit as they possibly can out of their workforce via labor intensification by Mm -hmm. understaffing their buildings so that they can have like each nurse, each, you know, caretaker covering more and more people per employee, which is great for the company and horrible for the patients. Yeah. And so the fact that they were able to spe- get like safe staffing standards specifically like written down into the contract, that's huge. Like, and cause that's something that we hear from nurses all over the country at the various strikes that, that they've been doing. And then the other one, the other big thing they mentioned was how like custodial staff who are, you know, continuously, you know, demeaned in, in U.S. society is like, oh, this is like the worst job there is. But it's like people who are keeping hospitals clean are performing an incredibly vital societal mm-hmm. function because a, a dirty hospital is just going to like spread disease everywhere. And so like they are perform they are absolutely like performing vital healthcare work. And in a lot of cases, they weren't able to hire anybody to do that job because they were paying like $12 an hour. And who's going to do that in an environment like where you have a much higher rate risk of catching, you know, COVID or something because yeah. it's a hospital. And, and so the fact that they were able to get those two things, like the, the staffing issues written down into the contract so that it's an actual hard requirement. And in response to that, Catholic Health has said they plan to hire between 250 and 400 additional staff members in order to comply with the new contract. Like to get those two things, it's like, this is how the <laughs> this is how a well-run strike is supposed to work and I think that, that as you as we've been talking about like that level of participatory democracy shows you why they were able to have such a high level of solidarity, a high level of community support and actually go out there and get what they were fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. People don't like going to meetings because they've never been to a meeting that actually gets shit done. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> And this really did, I mean, you see quotes here from like Giovanna DiGiassari, a nurse at Mercy, who said it's extremely historic to see staffing ratios in writing for not just nurses, for ancillary staff as well. Um, And that's just, I mean, that's huge. She says it all right there in like, you know, 15 words. Yeah, it's really, it's true. I thought that actually specifically tying it to the ways in which these, these, these like hospitals kind of make their money, which is by having people in beds, technically, mm-hmm. like to say that like, you can't lower the amount of people in beds because you can't, you, you don't want to do that, not only for your business model, but also like tying it to that means that like you can't cut staffing there's not a way to cut staffing unless they just shut down the whole thing like that it's it's really it's really good to to hit them right in the in the the purse strings mm-hmm. yeah and so with our next story we've got what is now actually for the moment hopefully soon this will not be true uh, is the actually the second largest single strike in the country, which is the Columbia Student Workers, 
who have gone on strike in in New York City. This is the Student Workers of Columbia, which who are members, also members of UAW. They are members of UAW Local 2110. And this is like this is a union of graduate and undergraduate student employees of Columbia University, and is technically now the you know the second largest strike in the country because uh, this is about affects about three thousand people. So they are just behind John Deere. Although hopefully they will soon be the third largest if uh, Kaiser Permanente goes on strike next week. Right. Um, but so this is mostly coming out of an article from Liberation News, where this is, I believe, the third time that Columbia uh, student workers have gone on strike in in the last year or so, and it's and it's largely over a lot of the same things. So there's there's some good stuff and there's some issues there, and we can get into it. Where like. I'm glad that they've been militants enough to go on strike multiple times, but the fact that they've had to, I feel like, is an in- indication that that energy isn't necessarily always getting used in 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 the to its maximum effect. But right. because, like I like last last spring, I, I believe we talked about this at the time. Uh, they reached a tentative agreement with the school that was voted down by the body of the union because it didn't substantially address the, the primary issues that they're fighting for, which in this case is, is, is your more classic like wages and healthcare. Right. But I mean, like also just su- such a classic line of like, uh, we had to vote the contract down because it didn't include any of the things we were asking for. It's like, you right. know, AKA like the, the point of having a contract. <laughs> right. And, and I think one of the things though, that I believe like, cause I don't want to rag on the, the union too much, but because to be fair for this specifically, this industry, these student workers, you, we've only just now gotten into the first full school year. That's going to be back in person. Right. Because that's something that absolutely hurt their prior organizing efforts was where because on the one hand, you do have more people thinking about organizing because of all the contradictions exposed by COVID. But when you're in the education sector and so much is being done remotely, it's a lot harder for the workers who are – whether they're TAs, whether they're you know doing – like teaching classes for you know uh, professors or if they're working in the dining halls. It's much harder to make – your you know strike presence felt if everybody's just doing everything over zoom and it's harder for you to physically disrupt the actions of the university but now that people are back now that students are actually back on campus there's uh i think a much better chance to make the impact of this strike felt in the university and the you know surrounding area yeah, well, and spe- the surrounding area, I mean, like, that is mostly where people end up having to move to because they can't actually right. live around where the work is is b- because of the amount of compensation that they're offered. I mean, so yeah. often they have to move to many, to, to like, outer areas, and many also, uh, especially people who are parents, have to go on certain forms of welfare, like SNAP benefits, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I mean, if that's re- this is our education system. This, I mean, it says here in the notes that uh, Columbia has a fourteen billion dollar endowment. Yeah, and yet yeah. somehow the workers there don't have enough money to live near where they work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like this is one of those things where, I, yeah, I, it's like you get it. It's like okay, on the one hand, 
Columbia is, you know, a prestigious university and, and folks involved who, who, who go there are from the majority, probably less likely, you know, to be from a poor or working class background. So like on the one hand there, it may not be the most obvious point of solidarity. That being said, these people are still workers and they are paid jack shit. Like what they are paid wouldn't be enough in most, you know, podunk college towns in the middle of nowhere. Whereas as these folks are trying to, you know, make a living in New York city, getting paid nine to $19,000 a year, depending on the department. And I, I, and this is for graduate students. And I understand that like, they, in a lot of cases, graduate student workers are provided, you know, housing by the, by the university, but that's nothing. Like, I don't know how you, even, even if you were getting your rent paid, how you're supposed to live even just near New York city, much less in it <laughs> right? for that amount of money. Yeah. It's completely impossible. And, and as you said, Lena, like with that gigantic endowment, the workers have pointed out and they mentioned in this, this article, Liberation News, that that their demands for you know a living wage and and, and usable healthcare benefits would cost less than one half of one percent of the assets in their endowment, which is something that I do think is it's easier to understand a lot of the conditions at these universities is if you stop thinking of them as educational institutions and thinking of them as real estate development trusts that accidentally give out degrees every once in a while. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, a lot like, of them are, that is their business. Their business yeah. is, is get, is getting land and trying to, uh, own like local housing, anything that the college students are going to end up renting all the fraternity houses, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like here in in Providence, like the the schools that are here, like Brown owns like the entire east side of the city, and like right. Providence College owns a shitload of stuff near me, and it's they're j- rapidly gentrifying the area. Like, and you just see over and over again these places that like have an ability via some arrangement with the government to get out of land taxes, just get repurposed from there. You know original supposed idea of we're just going to educate people. It'll be a public service, except now mostly what they do is, you know, buy up cities and push the people out that live there and and redevelop them. Right. (laughs) And, and, and meanwhile, these folks that are there, these, these student workers are having to go, like you said, they're having to go on snap benefits. And so, you know, these folks have been on strike for a week now. uh, And so hopefully now that, the students are actually on campus and so are the rest of the faculty and the administration, they'll be able to make, you know, their presence and the impact of their strike felt while, you know, they can actually physically disrupt things. Right. And in such a public space, I mean, they are seeing some, some nice solidaristic actions from people who are not necessarily in the union as well. So, so we'd like to see that all anytime, anytime you see more solidaristic actions, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, our next story is, it's kind of a two-parter. It's just covering a, a couple of pieces of, uh, Amazon watch news this week. One is a, a strike called in Germany by the second largest union federation there, Verdi, which has called it's basically at this point, it's annual holiday strike at Amazon where this is for the eighth consecutive year. They are calling on their members to strike at Amazon locations around Germany because of the fact that unsurprisingly, Amazon is not paying 
its workers in line with the rest of, of similar industry in, in the country. Yep. And like they're, they're not recognizing the union. They're doing pretty much everything they can to, to stand in the way of, of giving people decent, decent working conditions. Yeah. There's a statement here from the retail head of Verdi, uh, Orhan Achman, who says, uh, Amazon could not continue to, quote, refuse wage increases that other companies in the sector pay, and that it is unacceptable that a multinational corporation worth billions and which makes money hand over fist still refuses to give employees the wage increases that other companies in the industry pay. Uh, and this is because, of course, Amazon pays its German workers a minimum of 12 euros an hour, uh, which is probably what... Uh, the Germany's minimum wage will be soon if they change it from 960. Yeah. And, and I was looking that up like that's cause this, that surprised me how low that was. Not that because Amazon pays its workers shitty, like that's not surprising at all. Right. But I think one of the perceptions that folks will have is cause there's this portrayal of Western Europe and the, the, especially the Nordic countries, but, but even like Germany is held up sometimes as an example of like, this is how great social democracy can be. And this is like, if you, we, you get the workers involved in corporate ownership and stuff and they have, they have industrial bargaining and see, this is why we just need to, you know, we don't need to have a revolution. We can just gradually get there. But like these, these Amazon workers in Germany are paid less than the workers here. Yeah, and like I, I know that via the, the the social the welfare state in Germany is certainly a lot better than than here in the U.S. So I'm sure their quality of life is probably slightly better, but they're basically being paid thirteen fifty an hour if you convert it to dollars, mm-hmm. and which is like like, like I put in that note like Germany's probably about to raise their minimum wage to that. So it's I mean if you f- like functionally that's the equivalent of like paying you know eight dollars an hour here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, and they mentioned what he's specifically talking about with refusing wage increases that other companies in the sector pay is is because like they do have sectoral like industrial style bargaining there, right. where basically the logistics, like retail logistics industry as a whole, has a collective bargaining agreement on what the floor is going to be for their workers, rather than just negotiating company by company. But Amazon is just like, nah, <laughs> what is it? What is this bullshit? We're not, we're not doing that. We'll, we'll just pay people whatever we want to pay them. Fuck you. We're the, the, the biggest company in the world. And so now like that's, that's prompted 2,500 workers so far across seven locations in Germany to, to walk off the job. Yeah. Well, and it, it you know, their previous strikes have gotten them considerable concessions from the company, but the idea here is to force Amazon to recognize the 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 national bargaining agreements. Uh, and this is something that we've seen before, where if a company is large enough, especially if they're a tech company, they feel like they're not beholden to the rules and agreements yeah. that govern the land. And, um, you know, I haven't done a lot of digging on this, but it does seem like they've been able to get away with this pretty openly and blatantly with exactly zero repercussions from the German government. Yeah, that's because that's the other thing is like Germany just recently had their elections a few weeks, like I think maybe a month ago. Um, and they've there. I think they believe they're still trying to hash out what the governing coalition is going to end up being. But like that's the thing. It's all these protections. As long as the working class isn't actually running the government, they're kind of just nominal protections. And it's like if the state isn't going to enforce them, 
then why would the company bother to follow them? Exactly. So, uh, yeah, like, like, like they said in that article, and like you, you mentioned that like in the past, each one of these strikes has won concessions for workers there. But I think it's probably if, if they've been doing this for eight years, probably time to up the, the ante on whatever your tactics are going to be. Um, because I don't think Amazon is necessarily weakening as a company, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's good that they have like this large base of organization though. Cause that's something that we oh, definitely sure. don't have here in the United States. I mean, if we had regional, regional organizing bodies that could impose, you know, union style contracts on companies that don't necessarily have state recognized like a, a state recognized union like that's that's the i mean because what we're talking about here is how amazon has kind of subverted the uh the general practice because the general yeah. practice is basically to recognize the union and that and that amazon's like why do i have to do that the state isn't making me right exactly yeah and 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 yeah, while while we're this is highlighting, I think some of the 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 limits to that sort of social democratic viewpoint. If we had a union confederation that large, and if we had sector like industrial style bargaining, perhaps we wouldn't have seen the malfeasance of the second part of the the Amazon Watch story this week, which is that uh, they, it was announced. I think actually like a week and a half ago at this point that. The FTC is, is, is basically forcing Amazon after a settlement to return $60 million in stolen tips wow. that, that the company illegally withheld from Amazon Flex drivers for four years, from 2016 to 2019. Ooh, some regional CFOs getting fired. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and, like, this is just... This story was so frustrating to me because, like... I, the FTC press release, which I read, like to to get the details for this, like they're trumpeting, like, see, we're out here, we're fighting for the little guy. We are making Amazon give back the money they stole and not admit wrongdoing and not pay a single cent more in compensation than the money they took. Actually, yeah. specifically less from what I yes. uh, from what the the actual stipulations of it are because. Uh, the average amount that drivers are going to receive from this settlement is about uh, $420. Uh, That's right. Well, it says 422 but I whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, one worker or one driver being uh, compensated $28,000, which is wild that that much money was stolen. Um, but then... Uh, anyone who had less than five dollars stolen stolen from them is just kind of like, eh, no big deal. Like we're gonna just wipe that away. So I mean, with the amount of workers that they ripped off, I imagine that that you know under five dollar amount ends up racking up to, to quite a quite a larger number than than just a a little five dollar blip in their in their graphic. Yeah, well, and I mean, uh, the FTC is going to have to rely on a combination of collecting data from the former or current flex drivers who were disenfranchised this way, and also Amazon's own internal documents. So I'm sure there's going to be an extensive fudging of the numbers by Amazon to classify as many $100 and $200 thefts as being under $5. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because that's the thing. It's like 
the reason that I wanted to mention this case, cause it's like, it's not that this is like, look, it's good that workers are getting their stolen tips back, but the fact that this doesn't actually come with any real penalty means this isn't really much of a victory for workers. Right. But I think that this is an important story to just like, you know, remember <laughs> to keep it as a reference to bookmark because it's a perfect illustration of the way in which our judicial system is structured specifically to benefit, you know, the corporations and the ruling class, because it's like, you'll see the classic thing of it's like, if the boss steals a hundred dollars from your wages, what happens to them? If you steal a hundred dollars from the till, what happens to you? Like the, the, the punishment for a worker stealing $5 from Amazon could be like, you go to fucking jail. (laughs) Whereas Amazon steals $60 million and all they have to do is give most, but not all of it back. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, they should probably be paying back $10 on the dollar for every dollar that they stole. Yeah. And then they should probably also be slapped with some fines based on what they did and the scale of Mm -hmm. what they did, but also based on the scale of the company. Like I know that in some countries, uh, when you're issued a fine, whether by like a financial commission or by the police or whatever, it's scaled to your income, (laughs) which is like, okay, so fine Amazon $2.5 billion, please. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is not a punishment. Like this is the the point of that we're trying to get out of this is that this is not a punishment. They literally stole from lots and lots of people. And the what they're getting is not even a slap on the wrist, is it? Because they're not even they don't even have to pay all of their stolen wages. They are literally just they they were like, hey, there's an accounting error, and they're like, oh yeah, we'll uh, kind of fix that, and and there's no actual repercussion. So what is the incent the de incentivization for Amazon? There isn't one. They know that if they did this again, there would be another four year long trial where they would just come out on top right yep yeah and and that's the which is i think you know while obviously we are in favor of things like you know upping osha fines upping the finding ability of the nlrb increasing its ability to to penalize companies ultimately the only way to actually stop this stuff is an independently organized strong labor movement because like we're the only ones who are ever going to be able to hold these companies accountable. Like the state's never going to do it. The state works for them. So like while we can push for reforms that are absolutely good, it's like we can't ever depend on that without, you know, that, that strong and independent labor movement, which is, you know, why we're spent, we spend so much time hoping that these drives like in Bessemer and the, what the, the new Teamsters project and what we were talking about last week with the Staten Island workers who just filed for uh, union election at Amazon, mm-hmm. that those become successful because that's the only way that Amazon's ever going to get forced to stop doing this incredibly like hyper exploitative. And in this case, just straight up fucking theft. <laughs> Cause the only one that can stop them from doing that is the workers. Like the, the state's never going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and speaking of things that take four years, our <laughs> next, our, our final story is about 800 teachers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, who have gone on strike after four years without a contract. Jesus Christ. It's yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, so basically, this, uh, this school board, which, you know, fucks most school boards. Let's just be honest. Correct. 
they have been uh, the East teachers have had to face a wage freeze every single year for the past uh, four years without a contract. And which is, you know, as we've said on every single, you know, the of the past five episodes, that is a pay cut because it is, you know, mm-hmm. a wage freeze means that mm-hmm. inflation still goes up. Um, but, you know, all, all these teachers have been working through the pandemic and doing all of these, you know, the things that teachers do, which is probably also putting their own money into the classrooms, mm-hmm. doing their best to create like the like OK work or okay conditions for learning which we know that america has an absolutely failed education system with our uh you know our literacy rate at 79 percent. i mean this is the part of the reason why that sort of thing comes to pass these teachers have (laughs) four years i just yeah well and four years where two of the years were pandemic years and they right. still didn't receive a raise. They still didn't receive any extra protection or hazard pay or anything at all. Uh, it was basically the attitude was "fuck you, keep working, uh, yeah. Mister and Mrs. Essential Workers." Yeah, but the district didn't uh, didn't you know not get any money. Uh, apparently, through the pandemic relief funds, the district itself received sixty million dollars. And I just really gotta wonder, like, where did that money go? Like may like right. maybe it went into a set of textbooks, but I doubt it. I mean, it probably went to a new football field and more administrative salaries. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what that, it always is. Because because this everything about this situation, I'm like this is this feels just so much to me like the American educational system in microcosm because you've got. Four years without bothering to, you know, negotiate with the the teachers union. Meanwhile, they're putting in austerity budget after austerity budget, cutting everything that they're counting as like unnecessary or extra, like things like art or music or anything that might be considered extraneous to the potential, you know, overlords of these these, you know, future workers after they are let out of the education system and meanwhile you know like the fact that and these workers like not even getting hazard pay after working through the pandemic and then when the board was confronted by this at their like most recent school board meeting where there were 400 members of the scranton federation of teachers who basically packed the the school board meeting in a last ditch attempt to be like look we really just need you to, you know, give us, you know, an, a cost of living raise mm-hmm. and, and, you know, get our health care to the point where we can use it. And the response to that from the school board isn't, well, we've got all this $60 million. Maybe we can take a small amount of it and give you that. Or maybe we can, you know, bring back one art class a week or something. <laughs> it was to vote to cut off the teacher's health care if they struck. That was their response to this shit. And it, I like it. I I can't think of like a better illustration of like parents being confronted with the fact that the people that are responsible for you know educating their children are suffering to the point where ho- over a hundred of their colleagues have left because their jobs were either cut or they couldn't afford to continue to work there. Mm-hmm. That like the educational curriculum has been stripped down to the bare bones. And their response after getting a a windfall of money they can do whatever the fuck they want with is to say, how dare you ask for more pay? We shall punish you for this insolence. Yeah. Yeah. 
and to cut off their healthcare in the still ongoing pandemic. Yeah. It just really, I think it underlines how fucking straight up evil this attitude is towards the people who run your school and make you all your money. Yeah. Uh, Like it, it's one of these things where you'll see you every once in a while you see it. And I don't think it ever actually really hits because I think it's just so counterfactual that even, even relatively, you know, uh, gullible people don't f- don't usually fall for it. But you'll see this push by by the right sometimes to portray teachers as like greedy and like <laughs> like trying to. They just want all this ta- hard earned taxpayer money so they can have easy lives, indoctrinating your children into caring about music or yeah. art. <laughs> I mean, that really is part of it, though. Like, there's just a, a, a very anti-intellectual right-wing attitude in the United States um, that does kind of amount to just, like, they're teaching my kids about Chaucer. <laughs> and it's too <laughs> saucy for my brain. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, like, there's just everything about the situation in, in Scranton, which, by the way, is, you know, is, is, is the president's hometown – but of course, we haven't heard a, a peep out of the White House about this strike. By God, that's <laughs> Joe Biden's muse. Oh no, it's just the <laughs> Office theme song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like these workers, these these teachers have been dealing with larger class size, longer school days, no health care. Like all these programs have been cut. Like even if you didn't give a shit about the teachers, which what's wrong with you? Why don't you have empathy for fellow human beings? But right. even if you were in this bizarre, hyper selfish. And Ayn Randian scenario there, like these cuts are bad for the kids. Like if your kids are going to this school, even if for some reason you hate the, the teachers, like larger class sizes are bad for the children. So like, why wouldn't you want to spend more money to like provide them with a better education? Like it's not like the teachers are out there asking to be paid, you know, what they actually should be paid, what they're actually worth, like an actual like wage where they're not having to worry about this shit all right. the time and spending their own money to, to buy textbooks and school supplies. Well, I yeah. mean, I think uh, parents in the United States are largely encouraged not just to use schools as but also to think of schools conceptually as basically just a glorified daycare. Like this yeah. isn't a place where your student, where your children are becoming scholars and learning knowledge that will serve them as adults. It's a place where they can go for eight hours, so you can go work an office job. Yeah, well, and you know, there's that that mentality actually really kind of is focused on on this kind of separation of the home life and the school life, mm-hmm. and and really not looking at those two things as deeply intertwined. Because even in school districts, a lot of the times, like people with difficult home lives are are ignored because of their you know their their inability to actually affect the the living conditions of the the kids themselves or. Or like raise up their communities, especially when the education in their community is consistently suffering. But then also when people are at home, they think that yes, yeah, school is a daycare. There's like it's nothing. It's not related, and that they there's some sort of like deep antagonism between the family and the school or something no. like that. Well, and, and, and yeah, yeah. It, it's well illustrated. Um, this article even says SFT president Rosemary Boland says the community is a hundred percent behind the striking teachers. So businesses are feeding them. Motorists are honking support at picketers and three union endorsed candidates, won school board seats uh, Tuesday night, which 
kind of an interesting, uh, you know, I'm kind of an anti-electoralist, but school boards <laughs> are an interesting case. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, they do tend to have like outsized power in yes. the local community. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, or, and I mean, sometimes that requires you to to get out there and do that organizing on com- your community as it exists. Right. You know, that right. that is part of it's like uh, what Dan was saying in the uh, the Lenin on the trade union question about you know not creating some sort of perfect you know Marxist union and and like still having to go and actually engage with the unions that exist. Uh, the the school board does exist. The school board has significant power. It is not a lot of people. If you got on it, you could maybe even enact some power. Yeah, I mean, like Dan said, it, it has an outsized power in its community, and that's why it's like worthwhile. But it's also partially right. worthwhile because in the grand scheme of the United States, it's small enough peanuts that the CIA isn't going to come destabilize <laughs> yeah. your school board. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> for they've now, already done it. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> Um, yeah, but anyways, it does seem like these folks have done a lot of the groundwork necessary to try and create those. I mean, and, and I think you see this a lot with strikes with teachers where they, you know, it's teachers, they tend to be pretty integrated into mm-hmm. the community because they serve a vital role in, 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 in maintaining society. And so before the strike, the union members met with parents, provided backpacks to students and like letting folks know it's like, this is why we're striking. We understand that this is disruptive and that this is tough for the kids, but it's like, look at all this shit that like, we can't keep dealing with this four years without a contract, getting a wage cut year after year after year as hundreds of people have left the district. Like it's, it's just purely unsustainable. And the fact that they, like actually did that outreach with the parents yeah. and stuff, I think is, is we're seeing the results now with the, the community standing behind them. I mean, the community involvement and support is utterly critical. And it's like you said, like yeah. teachers are very well integrated. This is somebody who like many, many parents in the area are on a first name basis with and right. would recognize again if they saw them because they've seen them so many times. They've gone to parent teacher meetings. They've gone and uh, talked to them about seen their kids. Seen them work at the grocery kids. store in their off time. Yeah. yeah, I've seen them at their summer jobs running the hot dog stand. So, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. So, so hopefully these folks are actually able to, with all this community support, you know, stay out there and, and get this ridiculously reactionary school board to actually agree to the like honestly i don't know from what i was reading about like their demands i was like i don't know i think you guys should be asking for more (laughs) because like they're 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 all like they're what they're asking for is is so like such a minimum that if the if the the school district can't reach it like that's just what's the point of even having the school district to Mm -hmm. be honest yeah well, it's 8.36. It's time again for the meet <laughs> That's right. It's 15.15. That's the new comedy number, everybody. We're using military <laughs> time to tell jokes now. Get in on the ground floor on this one, folks. That's you, right. You, you, you won't regret it. Well, speaking uh, of the ground floor, this is a meme that uh, utterly shattered Twitter last week yes. when, it, when it landed. Because it's just a screen cap of an article. Uh, and it has a photo of two 
workers at Taco Bell sitting in a booth. One is smoking a cigarette. And the article header just says, as drive through line grows longer, Taco Bell workers sit inside smoking. North Carolina <laughs> video shows. A North Carolina man <laughs> captured Taco Bell workers sitting inside the Asheville fast food restaurant smoking while a line of cars continued to grow outside. And I got to just give it up for these workers. Take your break. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I Like, I love this picture because there is not a single fuck given by <laughs> these two are like, look. I know you're waiting there, but I'm on my fucking break, and these people have been running me ragged for hours, and I'm taking my goddamn break. You want there to be people at the drive through 24-7? You tell the fucking manager to hire enough people so that, you know, these two have probably been the only people running this goddamn place for the past, like, 14 hours. Yep. So yeah. yeah, and you can't see their faces very well. It's not a super high-resolution image, but their body language. pay me to care kind of face. Yeah. yeah. yeah pay me to care. Their body language is saying everything that Dan just said, like loud <laughs> yeah. and fucking clear. <laughs> like this cigarette is more important than you, dude, with a camera. <laughs> and, and just how indi- and how indignant the headline is, yeah. where it's just like, how dare these peasants not, you know, hop to to get me my treats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, you're telling me I got to wait nine extra minutes for a loaded beef griller because this lady (laughs) wants to smoke a cigarette. (laughs) What is society? The answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in the in the idea of what is society coming to, we have our latest teenage stepdad meme, which is something that we, uh, you know, almost always have to bring in because like his memes are always the best versions of the memes. This one is high quality. Yeah, this one is a book cover, very clearly like like ragged on the edges kind of book cover, which he he loves to take like physical mediums and kind of make them feel really natural, like you could pick up the meme and hold it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a picture of a dragon trying to talk to uh, I don't know some character it, on the it, book cover. Is it Smaug? It, it's yeah. This is this is from the Hobbit. Okay, so yeah. this is the dragon Smaug talking to uh, Bilbo, who is trying to hide. Yeah, uh, and the title of this book is I Do Not Take a Cash Salary or Bonuses from Anywhere. I Only Have Stock. <laughs> uh, classic Elon Musk tweet from last week Yeah, uh, where uh, he was debating whether or not to sell off a bunch of stock. Uh, and then and he ran a poll on Twitter. And then after the poll, it was discovered that his brother had already sold a bunch of stock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... This is this was like a very funny because it exposed how many people like want to get into the weeds about this nitpicky stuff. Like people be like, "Oh well, no, he's you know he's telling the truth. He doesn't actually get a cash salary." It's like I don't give a shit. Like this guy has billions of dollars that he got from being the scion of a apartheid emerald mine yeah. and then being given $5 billion in federal subsidies to build a fucking privatized military satellite launching company. Yeah, like I mean, the sticker the, on this book says, it says, sounds kind of like bullshit to me. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the thing. Before you, quote, get into the weeds, which I think is a good way to think about it, hemming and hawing about whether or not Elon Musk actually takes a salary or where his money comes from this or that, Take a minute, take a deep breath, and ask yourself, 
am I caping for a billionaire right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just have a moment of honest self-reflection. I promise it will be <laughs> worth it. <laughs> yeah, and then the last little detail on this piece is the author is a, or in the author area, it says a title or a tall tale by Shid E. Dick. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Right. I, I did bust out laughing when I read that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, not... You, they don't all have to be high concept jokes. Sometimes you just roll out the classics Look, and they, you, they just kill. You put this much graphic design work into a meme. <laughs> yes. You're entitled to a shitty dick joke at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, and and as as I will always uh, requote, it is not ad hominem if it's true. Uh, <laughs> That's speak, right. Speaking of things being true, we have a new comrade in the fold, folks. That's right. <laughs> we have... Yep. The great comrade Big Bird. Big Bird. I don't. I don't remember who who it was who said it. Did you guys remember who who kind of started this? Thing? I thought it was some like right wing person who was yeah. just like, and Big Bird is a communist, you know? Because Big Bird got the vaccine, which to yeah. me, I, I like oh. this logic. Actually, uh, everyone who has the vaccine is a communist now. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, welcome comrades, all 170 million of you in yep. this country now. You know, it, I know it's going to be difficult. There's a lot of new terminology to learn. There's a lot of reading, but hey, we got podcasts now. Yeah. It's easier than it's ever been. Don't fear. Yeah. We are now the largest registered party in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, right. this is a big bird uh, reading to some kids on a stoop. Uh, the book is labeled Communist Manifesto, and it says S is for Seize the Means of Production. That's It's a right. very nice, simple little meme. And actually, I almost think this is wholesome. I think that if this ended up in the wholesome channel in the Discord, get in the Discord, uh, then, then I think it would fit there. I mean, I also like this because uh, he's reading the Communist Manifesto to children, which is like the appropriate reading level for the Communist Manifesto. It was a simplified version of Marx's thoughts meant to be easily distributed and understood by like, in many cases, barely literate peasants. Um, so as much as I know Big Bird is actually a big brained Mao guy, it's nice that he's not reading <laughs> On Contradiction or something. Yeah. Uh, when like that's you know right. that that's that's more like ages twelve and up, and these kids are six or seven. <laughs> Big, Big Bird is meeting the kids where they are. That's and, right, as a good Marxist should. So <laughs> that's right. C carry on, their... on, comrade. You're doing the Lord's work. Uh, yeah. When when we said meet the people where they're at, we meant their front porches. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So this next one, which I got to enlarge because there's some smaller text on here. <laughs> Um, this one is kind of in the same genre where we were, we were looking at a few months ago when there was all of the people leaving rather funny signs when the whole store would quit at once. Yep. But so this is an act, this is a printed out meme and it's the Drake format where the top is the giving your boss a former letter of resignation, like a professional employee. And then the bottom one, the better one is quitting by using a meme. <laughs> and then in tiny font at the bottom, my last day will be the 15th of May. Sincerest regards. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is an older meme. Uh, I assume that this was actually created back in May, but I don't know. It just recently came around to, to, to my meme folders. So I, I just liked it because handing your boss a meme 
they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll read this. And then the paper's already in their hand. They can't yeah. not. See, that's yeah. the trick. <laughs> it is like your boss will try to, if you try to like give them a signed letter, any sort of like petition, and you know, they're going to they're gonna try to not take it. But yeah, if but you I get, mean, that, get that shit into their hand, it's too late. You turn your resignation <laughs> into a meme, you roll it up, you hand them the rolled up sheet of paper, you say, hey, man, take a look at this meme. And then as soon as it's in their hands, you just yell, you've been served and run away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, and I mean, with more and more people quitting all the time, this is, you know, just going to be more and more relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, speaking of, you know, getting people served, right? I just love this meme. It's actually, I'm actually only putting this in the meme review so that everyone can add it to their reaction repertoire. So when everybody, <laughs> whenever anybody sees someone make a really stupid comment, you can just post this. And what it, what it is, is it's just a visual image of Lenin, but also the eyes and mouth are replaced by the guy who looks like he's permanently cringing, like the old guy <laughs> with the white beard. and Harold. Harold? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stock photo <laughs> cringing Harold guy, yeah. 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 Like, that's the thing. It's like, so obviously this is one of the ones that you really want to be in the Discord for. That's right. <laughs> because as a meme with no text, just our voices are going to be even, you know, have a more difficult time describing it. But this is ever since semi-volunteering to go back on Twitter a few months ago, there have been so many things that this is the perfect response to (laughs) like all this bullshit about patriotic socialism or the weirdos talking about how teachers and nurses aren't working class or this other stupid bullshit from people like claiming to be Marxists. I mean, it's spiraling out of control. People are posting screen caps of shoe on head saying that Kyle Rittenhouse is quote unquote, a boss. People are posting screen caps of Nick land replying to Amy Therese tweets. My brain can't fucking handle it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's out of control. Yeah. And so we're here to provide you this meme. (laughs) Like we, we know that you can, you can right click and save on anything. We're actually going to turn it into an NFT so that it feels better when you right click and save it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. A non man. NF and T aren't great letters for Marxist terminology. There's just not a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, on that note, you know, get in the Discord if you'd like to support us. We're entirely listener supported, so go to the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/workstoppage. Throw us five dollars a month. It goes a long way to helping us keep doing doing the show. Uh, do some reviews, share the share the show with your friends, and follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain to see him post the Lenin cringing meme. Follow Dan <laughs> and the rest of the, the pod on Twitter at Work Stoppage Pod to also see him post the cringing Lenin photo. That's right. And uh, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, Red Game Table, and Notes on the Crises. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.